Folks, if you're liking what you're getting from 30MPC, the number one way you can support us is by subscribing to our newsletter. Every week, you only get two emails. On Monday, you get a content roll-up of everything that dropped last week. And on Fridays, I pick one topic and I personally write a deep dive on things like how to cold call, how to run a discovery call, or even how to hire an AE. So if you're liking what you're getting here, take two seconds, go to the show notes. You'll see a button to subscribe to our newsletter, or you can go to 30mpc.com backslash newsletter and do it there. We'll catch you soon. Cheers. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to this episode of 30 Minutes to President's Club. My name is Armand Farouk, and I'm here with my co-host, Nick Sigelski. And today, for a round two, in the last episode of Dragon Ball Z, he was over at Drift, a stellar sales leader. Now, the VP of sales over at Tenderly, it's Miles Kane. Nick, why should people listen? There's two unique things that we talk about in this episode. One is an unconventional use for post-it notes, and two is how you can use your flaws to build trust with the buyer. And so, Armand, more and more buyers are going to be trusting you, let me tell you. Oh, three, two, one, I don't trust you. Today's tip to optimize your sales day is brought to you by Boomerang. If you get an email and the action required on that email is going to take you less than two minutes to do, do it on the spot. It's not worth adding it to your to-do list, having to look at the item, remember what you need to do. That's going to take you more than two minutes anyway. So do it on the spot, get it off your plate. Now we documented our best templates and tips to help you optimize your sales day with our friends at Boomerang. And you can get that documentation for free at the link in the show notes. Today's tactic to triple your connect rate is brought to you by RocketReach, who provides data that lets you reach out to the right person at the right account at the right time. Every time you're reaching out to an account, pull down the contacts again. Yes, I know it sucks, but the average tech tenure is two years, which means 50% of the workforce turns over every year. So look up the account, pull anyone who was hired, and scratch anyone who was left. And one way you can pull verified and accurate data is with Rocket Reach. So if you like this, check out their toolkit on eight ways to triple your cold call connects in the show notes. This actionable competitive tactic from Clue is the trap question. Steer discovery toward the winning zone. If we're competing with a podcast that has no newsletter or webinar series, we might ask a trap question like, how do you figure out if those podcast listeners are making their way to your mailing list? And when you're in a head-to-head, there's no better way to prepare for your next competitive battle than with our trap questions and battle card templates from our friends at Clue. The link's in the show notes. Gong's going to help you run the five-minute drill at the end of all of your calls today. At the end of a call, pressure test the prospect with three questions. Number one, do you want to buy? If the answer is no, why set a next step at all? Number two, when do you want to buy? If it's tomorrow, we got to move fast. Number three, how do you buy? Based on the first two answers, I can now adequately decide if and how I set a next step. And this was stolen from the Gong 30 MPC 90-Minute Masterclass, and you can steal it too in the show notes. Today's deal acceleration tip is brought to you by Demandbase. If you want to save a ton of time as a salesperson and be more relevant, I recommend you prioritize your prospecting by those prospects who are showing buyer intent. It'll keep you from making a bunch of noise and reaching out to folks who aren't in market, and instead you'll reach out to folks who are in market. Now, we built a bunch of templates to help you prioritize, accelerate, and win with Demandbase, and there is a link to those wonderful templates in today's show notes. All right, Miles, welcome back to the show. You remember we start every single interview with your top three actionable takeaways, so let's get your three. 
Thanks so much, Nick. Excited to be back. Uh, so the first one I'm calling Power of the Post-it Note. This is something that I've done for years and it's been successful for me. And I think it's very timely given that it's the new year. Most sellers out there are either back to zero in terms of their revenue targets or about to be if their fiscal year is flipping over in February. But the Power of the Post-it Note starts and ends with the fact that you know we have so many ideas going on in our heads at all different times, uh, goal setting, what to be focused on, where am I spending my day and my time? I myself, like I use Google Docs, I use Notion, I've got Evernote, I've got Apple Notes, I've got my phone, way too many areas for digital notes to kind of be lost amongst the shuffle and priority list. If you take out a physical post-it note, it gives you a confined space where you can write no more than three bullets as to what you should be focused on in that given day, week, month, or quarter. And you put it right on, on your laptop or on your desk right in front of you so that you can't get up and get a drink of water without seeing that there. It really brings it back to simplify and focus on what you're actually supposed to be doing day in, day out. I think it's a great way for folks to be focused to get the year started right. Very nice. What's number two? Yeah. So number two, similar theme of starting the new year, calling it the annual goal setting backed into uh, your daily inputs. I think as sellers, when you're handed your new quota or comp plan for the year, especially if you're newer in your uh, career, a VP of sales telling you to go out and close a million dollars of revenue for a year, like that can be a very daunting number. And it's, you know, 12 months out, who knows where you're going to be at that point. Backing into tangible chunks of goals that you can do on a daily, weekly, monthly basis, super powerful here. So again, if you start with that annual target, break it up into actual quarterly revenue targets from quarters, break it into monthly targets from your months, break it into weekly targets and in to daily targets. And the goal there is you're not trying to close deals every single day. You're trying to work through the exercise of what are the actual goals and activities that you can control on a daily basis that by the end of that week, month, quarter, and year, you're going to be very comfortable knowing that you put everything into it to get to those outputs. So it's really focused on the daily inputs, which will then lead to those annual outputs and goals. Love it. Round us out, Miles. What's number three? Yeah. So the third one, I was thinking about ways to kind of get your year off to a quick start. And I've got an idea of how to grow your existing pipeline by up to 50% with just one question. And I actually want to give both of you guys a shout out here in terms of the virality that you guys are building on the podcast network here. Um, it's asking your happy and healthy customers for warm introductions. Every rep that's out there has a little bit of experience and has got either two, three, five, 10, 20 customers in their book of business. Asking those current customers of yours that are happy for introductions into their network. Like one thing I know, like myself as a sales leader, I've got a lot of friends in my network who are in similar types of roles and positions. So when you guys ask for introductions to that, I was more than happy to do it. I like you guys. I trust you. You've provided value to me. It's an easy two-way street. So any rep that's out there who's successfully closed any customers, going back to those folks and actually asking them, hey, is there anybody else in your network that you'd be comfortable offering up a warm introduction for me? I know for a fact 99% of sellers out there are not doing this and you will get more quality, warm pipeline by doing that one question. So Miles, let's start with the annual goal and then we'll work our way backwards to the daily goals and then creative ways to generate pipeline on an account. So we have this big, let's call it a million dollar number for 2023. How do I start to break that down into digestible inputs and pieces throughout the quarter, week, month, et cetera? Yeah. So I think it depends upon your role in the sense of like, how long have you been at a given company? If you've been at a company for at least a year, the beauty of that is you've got some data from last year that you can pull from. If you're new to a company or a role, um, that's okay because you can go talk to the reps who've been there before and ideally been successful and ask them these questions or just do your own data gathering. But the first step is you want to really understand what is your average selling price or average contract value to give you a sense of, okay, a million dollars is the target. Well, how many deals do you actually need to close to get there? 
to do an easy math exercise. Let's say you're selling kind of a mid-markety type opportunity and there are 100K deals you're doing. Okay, so you got to close 10 deals, right? That already to me, closing 10 deals sounds a hell of a lot more doable than closing a million dollars. It's just that like psychology tip of like breaking it down into something a little bit more manageable. From there, okay, you've got uh, 10 deals you have to close. Well, how many actual opportunities do you need there? Again, you can go back in history and see at your company for the top reps, what is the actual close win rate percentage of qualified opportunity? Let's say it's, you know, on the conservative side, let's call it 30%. Okay. Well, if it's 30%, that means you need what, a little over 3x of pipeline to get there. So if you're going to close 10 deals a year, that means you need 30 opportunities. Okay. Again, 30 opportunities over the course of a 12-month annual year, like that, that sounds doable. So now you're talking, you've got the total amount of opportunities that you want to go after. Let's break that into actual a quarterly exercise. So in Q1, let's do 25% of those. So let's call it 10 just to be easy and get a little, maybe a hot start on the year. You need 10 opportunities in Q1. So you need three or four, let's call it per month. And so that's works out to what one per week or so that you need to actually do. So if you're creating one new qualified opportunity per week, you're going to be on track to develop enough pipeline to actually give yourself a chance at closing that million dollar target. So that alone in the course of, you know, 60 seconds, all of a sudden, I'm not staring at this big, massive rock of a million dollars up there. I'm just sitting down with all my tools at my disposal to go find one new opportunity per week. And so I'm curious about how this informs sort of the post-it note methodology, which is the daily action that you're then taking. Because the math that you just did for me, it's fairly prospecting focus. It's the belief that, okay, if I can get X number of ops in my pipeline, I trust that I'll be able to actually progress those ops to getting them closed. I don't imagine for your sellers, Miles, the only thing that is on their post-it note is prospect, prospect, prospect. And so can you give me an example? One, what the heck is on your daily post-it note? And then two, for your sellers, what are you recommending that they put on theirs? How are you recommending that they live their day, their week as a seller? Yeah. My first reaction is, depending on who I am in the company or the type of the time of year, I actually would just put prospect, prospect, prospect. Because if you're new to a company and you don't have any existing pipeline, you're not closing any deals until you prospect, right? Of course, there's marketing leads or BDRs, but like the top reps out there always know like self-source pipeline, like you can never not be prospecting. So number one, I would say don't, you know, don't think it's completely crazy to think that way. Second question you said for me, so I'm uh, four or five months into a new role, VP of sales at Tenderly. We're a blockchain development platform. We are in the build phase. We did our series B round of fundraising a little bit over a year ago. I came in last fall to help build the go-to-market team. I've got three things on my post-it note, people, pipeline, and process. Um, those are the three key rocks for me that I'm convinced will set myself up for the best chance of success this year. And I can go into kind of the, the details on each one of those, but like people, obviously I'm building a team. Pipeline, obviously, the oxygen of our company is building more pipeline. I'm out there prospecting now as our first seller on the ground. And then the process piece is really kind of building that V1 of our sales playbook. So as we're onboarding reps, they will have some sort of guidance on where to go. But those are those are the three Ps for me. And then like an actual seller that's a little bit more matured into their role. Again, like it doesn't differ too much there. Like to me, prospecting is always one of those three bullets there. But then the second and or third are talking about the actual existing pipeline that you do have. So there's that constant push and pull to me as a top rep where, yes, you're going to have existing pipeline that you need to close. That's the whole point of the job. But as you're closing deals, like you still can't take your eye out the ball of adding more deals into your pipeline so that as you're closing deals, your pipeline doesn't completely suffer. So it's it's a mix of both depending upon where you're at in your tenure of the company and what your key focus is for that quarter. 
So Miles, we talk a lot about the concept of time blocking. And as an SDR, oftentimes you learn to do your 200 dials, you do your X hundred emails, what have you, you break into this many accounts. And then once you start closing, you get SDR support, and then you get all these deals coming your way. And one thing that I've observed very frequently is an AE's days or weeks will often turn into these seesaws where they'll get this buildup of pipeline and they're closing, closing, closing. It happens at every single end of the month, every single end of the quarter, and the prospecting stops. And then all of a sudden it's back to zero. And that's why you see these big swings in the reps who are a little bit less consistent. And so if you're advising an AE on how to smoothen out that seesaw effect. Do you have any tips for AEs that are managing a book and trying to fill their pipeline? Yeah. One thing that I think we did fairly well at Drift the last couple of years was bringing the team together on what we called power hours or prospecting hours on a weekly and consistent basis where we had time blocks. It was typically either Monday mornings or Friday afternoons to kind of not get into the actual meat of the week where People had it on their calendar blocked off. And unless you had a significantly serious closing call or something else, like you could not block over it. And so committing to that focus across the team and having the leaders from the top down show up and help actually prospect with them to know that it's a company-wide initiative. But we've all seen it happen where reps that do that and forget about prospecting next year, they show up on January 1st and they've got no pipeline and they're screwed and they've got to spend six months doing it. So um, I think it starts at the leadership level of A, getting them time commitment there, but also showing up on a weekly basis with them and helping them and showing that you're leading from the front and actually doing your own prospecting with them. And also like gamifying it too, like sellers are freaking competitive. And like one thing I've seen happen uh, very successfully is rewarding making deals that you actually self-source more valuable to somebody, paying them a spiff of a percentage point or giving them a gift card or an early vacation or whatever it might be so that they know like these deals, I'm going to go out myself. They're even more valuable than if it's a marketing source lead or a BDR source lead. I remember one thing that we did over at PAVE is, and we actually had the managers cold call candidates during those dial blitzes. And the reps loved it. And we would have these competitions between, we would have the SDR team as one, And then we would have the AE team as another. And then we would have the managers calling candidates. And so we'd have this three-way competition between the SDR team, the AE team, and the manager team. And that's how you can make this fun, guys. And so if you're a rep and you don't have a leader that's doing this right now, one, you can bring it up. Two, you can still do this with your SDR and you can have a competition with them or with a couple other fellow AEs as well. And so you can make this fun. And that fun part of it and having the rhythmic nature of it will make you more likely to not fall behind. Miles, I want to talk about other ways we can build pipelines. So let's assume that we're doing a good job starting with the annual goal. We're putting it on our post-it note. We're not doing the ebb and flow every single week. You work at a company that currently has a decent amount of PLG-driven deals. Could you start by maybe defining how does Tenderly get a product-led growth lead into your funnel? And then let's talk about what are the things that you're looking for that would lead you to believe that you should reach out to someone that is actively using your product. Sure. So PLG product led growth is the, you know, it's the new kind of hot term out there the last couple of years. We were doing it at SmartBear 15 years ago. It, it was just called, you know, free trials or freemiums and open source software that converts into paid products. So it's it's not nothing new per se, but it's just got a lot more focus, I think, in the industry, which is awesome because from a software go-to-market strategy, it just makes so much sense that Every piece of information in the world is online. People can Google everything they want, and now they have the ability to sign up and actually take your own product for a test drive before they're actually engaging with reps. Now, because of that, of course, like the window of value add for a seller's 
salesperson keeps shrinking and shrinking so that you only have, you know, maybe five or 10% of the sales cycle that you're actually engaging with somebody. So Tenderly is a developer platform targeting Web3 Ethereum developers. So anybody out there building new applications in the blockchain space, they are potentially targets for us who we can help them build, test, monitor, and operate their smart contracts at scale. So as a seller, you have to understand where in the value chain do you actually add that value? And rather than a more traditional top-down enterprise type sales approach where you're walking into a C-suite and pitching the CMO to give you 250 grand to do this project that's going to take nine months to implement. These are developers who you have to be comfortable knowing they're going to sign up for your product and they're going to get probably 70 to 80% of the value of the enterprise solution without actually paying for it. From there, we get those triggers of we get notifications of signups and they pipe into Slack channels and we can see all of that. Our goals as sellers, again, is we remove the sales hat and we put on the business consultant hat when we're talking to these folks. And I can call up somebody who's a new developer. They just signed up for a free product. And I can say, hey, Nick, thanks so much for taking a look at our solution. I would love to walk you through how we've helped similar types of developers in our space see incredible amount of value, whether it is on the building, the testing, or the monitoring and operating of your smart contracts. I would love to show you a little bit bigger demo, bigger picture, get you thinking about ways that we can help you there. And then consistently finding ways to add value through their process. So whether it's you know monitoring their usage, offering them invites to webinars, offering them, again, custom demos or solutions with our uh, founding team who are all very technical folks. We're trying to insert ourselves into the process so that as they are evaluating the product, taking it through its paces, they're eventually going to say, hey, that guy Miles actually wasn't so much of an annoying salesperson. It sounds like he actually needed the help. And one they actually get to that point of wanting to scale their usage. They understand that, you know, things like legal or security or advanced usage or going all in and buying 100 licenses, all that kind of stuff. Like you can't really do that just on a credit card. So eventually they're going to have to raise their hand and want to talk about larger consumption. Like that's when you want to be there for them. And eventually you're going to grow those small, lower spend accounts into substantial five, six, seven figure accounts. Can you give me a sense of what the communication timing looks like here? So you get a Slack notification, somebody signs up. How soon do you contact them through which medium? Yeah, so we've built some pretty powerful automated campaigns with our marketing team so that anytime a user signs up, like they're getting the auto email so they know about, you know, the login and sign up and all that kind of stuff. I think there's a fine line of being helpful versus being annoying. And that's something that we're always trying to toe the line of like making sure they're getting value as quickly as possible, but not feeling as though they're getting a call every single day from a salesperson. So um, we try to get in touch with folks within 24 to 48 hours of those new signups. We want to make the outreach so that they know that there's somebody there to help. We don't usually expect a response right there just because, again, they want to try the product and get comfortable before they raise the hand. But where we get our most fruitful conversations are two channels. One is actual Slack channels with customers. So once they raise their hand and say, hey, we've got a project, we've got a couple of weeks of testing, is there a collaboration space we can use? Most developers will jump into a Slack channel, which is great. So they're not worried about you calling them, but it's a work collaboration environment. And the other one, which is just kind of a fun one, I'm still wrapping my head around is we use Telegram all the time for Web3 developers, where again, it's a bit more secure, it's encrypted, uh, they don't have to, you know, they a lot of times might not share their name at first, but we know it's a developer from XYZ organization and they're power users of the product, that's all good. So again, it's not the, you're not selling hot dogs to somebody at a baseball game here, you're building trust over time so that they know, hey, this can become a core part of our business technology stack and development environment. um, And so that they can invest, you know, substantial amount of money with you over time. Miles, we've talked a lot about the triggers of, okay, if we have value add content to send to these folks, if someone is signing up immediately, we're doing something to say, hey, we're here to help, et cetera. 
that's one bucket of sort of sign-up based messaging. The other two common buckets that I've seen in PLG are usage-based, meaning you see them doing certain things in the product, or consolidation-based, meaning you see multiple people signing up for a product at the same company, but there's not a shared united motion. Can you talk about if you're using either of those and what those motions look like? We absolutely use both user-based and usage-based models. And I can actually tell you over the last month, two sizable opportunities of six figures in value that we closed. One was a usage-based model where they originally signed up. And I, you know, again, coming, I'm newer to the Web3 space. There's a ton of these decentralized finance applications that are out there who, you know, in my past life, I used to look for, you know, which who's the biggest company out there. If it's a 10,000 person company, that usually equates to big money. This was a 10 person organization, but the computing power that they were looking for, for Tenderly to really be the infrastructure and the backbone of what they were looking for was through the roof. And so something that I looked at and old miles would have been like, oh, this is a waste of my time. I'm not going to chase this turned into one of our more strategic key customers who potentially could be a seven figure account for us this year. So that was one example. A second one, which was another well-known Web3 brand out there, we were talking to two different developers. It seemed to be going well, but to be honest, they weren't really giving us a whole lot of information. And one day in our San Francisco office, I was with one of our engineers who had access to all the user-based data that we have. And he came over and he kind of had a smirk on his face. I'm like, what's going on? And he goes, look at this. And he showed me that same company. I thought there was only two people there within the span of the last two weeks, over 50 different developers that also signed up for a free version of the product. Now they were anonymous or they hadn't reached out or they hadn't talked to anybody. So it was all very disparate. But I used that, went back to the team that we were talking to. They then talked internally and all of a sudden it became that consolidation place. So yeah, I think the lesson there is like, you know, especially when you're new to an organization, like your past triggers of success, like does not mean the future, like be very open and honest with yourself of learning the new ways of whatever product or service you're selling, because those user or usage-based metrics and models, uh, they can be pretty exciting when done well. Miles, I want to ask you about this trust piece, because normally when I think about the first time that I get on a meeting uh, or have a conversation with a prospective customer, their guard is up a little bit, right? Because they have this perception of what a salesperson is. And there's lots of ways that you can start to break down that defensiveness. One of the, the ways that I see people do it is they, they do research on the person they're going to meet with. And they, they say, Armand was a wrestler in college. And I might spend 30 seconds in the beginning of the meeting talking about how I was a wrestler too. And now at least there's some level of relationship. You've talked about, you might not even know who these people really even are. And they're also very privacy focused. And so it might actually be off-putting for you to be like, I did all this research on you. You put something in the prep doc about using your flaws as a way to build trust. And I presume that's not you talking about Armand saying, look, I know I'm not very good looking. You should trust me. What are you actually (laughs) doing to build trust? Yeah. The reps who don't have success are the people that show up and they try to promise the world and they answer every question with, oh, yeah, we can do this. And oh, yeah, we can do that. Or it's only going to take a day to build that integration. Just trust me. Customers can see through that stuff. They can do their own research online. And so it is just opening up about where you have gaps in your product or your current process and showing the commitment to partner with a company over time. So as an example for us right now, the big focus like blockchain as a larger technology, it's a, you know, it's the future of the internet. A lot of people think about there's tons of integration work that needs to happen. We support a ton of versions of what they call chains. So there's different chains under the Ethereum network, but there's something like a couple hundred of them right now. And we support 20 of them. 20 is a lot. We 
we are a market leader and where we're at. But almost every single day, we get on the phone with customers who are in evaluations and they ask us about integration support for new networks. And rather than saying, oh, yeah, that one's just going to be due in a couple of weeks, don't worry about it. Like we tell them, no, we actually don't have support for that. It is on the roadmap. Let's talk about the priority in terms of is it a deal breaker? Where do you see the value from it? You know, what's going to happen if we don't support it? So just opening up and showing the customer kind of where you're at, opening up the kimono a little bit, it all of a sudden it removes the guard of like, oh, it puts a little bit of personality behind it. Like we are people, we are not just this, you know, boring company that's building software. Like we are a group of people coming together, trying to build, you know, great software for our community. And it builds that trust of like, okay, these people aren't perfect, but they realize that. And they put their hand up and say, listen, if you give us some time to partner with us, like we've got a background in history to show that we do deliver for our customers, but you know, it's not going to be a hundred percent from day one and customers. I think it really resonates with people. Well, I think one thing that happens oftentimes in these early stage companies is if you haven't sold in the early stage environment yet, and you've only sold at big companies, you're used to having 10 out of 10 things checked on the feature box. And your competitors also have 10 out of 10. And your goal is to say, we do the two of the 10 better than they do the two of the 10. But the difference in a space where it's oftentimes greenfield, or you're setting the new trend, or you're trying to displace incumbents, what oftentimes happens is you might have five of the 10 things that are often wanted in a space. And the sweet spot that you need to find is you need to find the customers that really value those five of the 10 things, and they want one more of the 10. And that one more of the 10 is hopefully on your roadmap. And those are the ones where you can walk them through the roadmap and get them on the same side of the table. Because from a vision standpoint, you're 80% of the way there and the roadmap gets you 20% of the way there. But I've seen a lot of reps make the mistake of they have these feature gaps, they email a roadmap, the customer interprets it the wrong way, and it goes horribly wrong. So Miles, can you talk about a lot of the reps on that are listening to this right now have probably received some degree of a product roadmap, whether it was a presentation or a deck or a PDF that was sent their way. What is the proper way in terms of when you bring that up and how you walk a prospect through a product roadmap? So like if you are in a more kind of enterprisey type space or you're selling to more established companies, or if you are at a company that is a bit more, you know, further on in your journey, they do become a bit more of a requirement where, you know, larger companies just, they won't take you serious if you don't have it. But remember, in this digital selling era where most, you know, 99% of info about your company is out there and free for customers, like this is usually like one of the things out there that customers can't find on their own. And so using it extremely carefully and strategically for your benefit you know, we talk a lot about the give get type scenario, like that is a perfect one to use in a give get scenario where a customer says something like, hey, where are these three features? Oh, they're on the roadmap. Okay, send us the roadmap. It's like, whoa, 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 let's slow down here. Let's talk through each of those three features. Let's prioritize them. Let's talk through the scenario of if we don't have one, two or three of them, what does that change for the deal? Uh, Or if we do have one, two or three of these, what does that do for the deal? It's a great opportunity to build that trust and add value to the customer, but I would not entertain it until you've fully done your discovery on the deal. You're in the middle of that evaluation. You can kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel of winning that technical decision, moving into procurement and negotiation of pricing. So it's much more of a later stage strategic process that I would recommend. Miles, one thing that I've experienced also selling at this stage is you'll get people who are below the line and 
They just don't get it because they're evaluating you like you're a solution that's been around for 10 years. And oftentimes they've, they're the folks who are the hyper-technical people in your space who have been doing it for 15 years. And they're really mad that you don't have this dashboard that everyone else has, but that old clunky dashboard wasn't the right way to do it in the first place. And you're just getting picked apart like you feel like you're on a feature checklist. And so what do you do in that moment when you're just getting peppered with all of these gaps that the incumbents have to re-anchor that call or recenter it back to the winning zone of the deal? Yeah. When you're in the early stage, if you are fighting against feature function and bells and whistles, like nine times out of 10, you're going to lose that deal. Like you have to take a bold, bold stance in the market in terms of like what you're fighting against. And you're attracting the right types of customers who understand where you're at in that journey and understand which of those bells and whistles you actually have. Like in the early days of Drift, we were selling a very basic rudimentary chatbot that there was literally 20 other vendors in the space that had more features and functionality, but we were winning deals because of our bold message and our loud, for lack of a better term, content in the space around how we were disrupting the sales and marketing real-time messaging space. And so customers weren't buying the features, they were buying our story and wanted to grow with us. And so early on, your only chance of survival in an early stage company, and let's be honest, the stats show something like nine out of 10 startups don't make it past two or three years. For you to give yourself a best chance of success, you have to take a bold stance of changing the status quo and going after truly those kind of early stage adopter type companies who understand where you're at and are willing to take that journey. Miles, phenomenal episode. We're running out of time though. And so we got to move to the final question, which is, we've talked about a lot of really great things salespeople should be doing. Now I got to ask you about a shouldn't. And so the last question is, what's one bad habit that you see a lot of salespeople exhibiting that you think they need to break because it hurts them more than it helps? Stop apologizing for doing your job. So many reps, whether it's on email or phone calls, they start with, sorry to bother you or apologies for breaking up your day or, oh, is it okay time? Like, like the world is run off salespeople pushing products. I don't care what it is, if it's in technology, if it's in cars, if it's in houses, if it's in your personal life, like sales is in everybody's job and DNA and they do it right, of course, but it drives me nuts when I get prospecting emails or if I hear reps apologizing for doing something that they're supposed to be doing. Beautiful. Miles, thank you for joining us. Everybody stick around for a 60 second recap coming up soon. Today's deal acceleration cheat code is brought to you by Pipedrive, which is a CRM built by sellers for sellers. The best way to drive your pipeline forward is to every single day, pull up a list of all of your open opportunities and look at each opportunity by stage and think, what can I do today that will increase my likelihood of winning this deal? That's how you keep your ops moving forward in between meetings that you have on the calendar. Now we documented five cheat codes that can help you cut your sales cycle in half with Pipedrive. There's a link in the show notes to steal them. Here's my secret to being a sales superhuman. It's auto reminders for everything. If I expect any reply from a prospect, I press command H and superhuman pops it right back into my inbox. If I don't get a reply in two days, that means if you handle an objection, if you suggest times for a meeting, or if you ask for cuts back on red lines, always create a two day reminder task and assume they will not reply. So if you want to follow up on time, every time you can get a free month of superhuman by checking it out in the show notes. Your Zoom Info actionable insight tactic is called Jane's Moving Up. 
Why? Because that's the email subject line you'll use when you get a real-time notice that your prospect Jane just got promoted. From there in the email, explain how ZoomInfo helps rising sales leaders win their first 90 days on the job by highlighting coaching opportunities or supporting a team-wide prospecting push. And you can try out this trigger-based email template for prospect promotion and four other scenarios inspired by ZoomInfo's go-to-market plays. Link in the show notes. Your top four takeaways from this episode with Miles Kane include number one, you can grow your existing pipeline 50% with one question. Your customers know other customers. Ask for the referrals. Number two, there are a couple different types of PLG triggers or product-led growth triggers you can use. Uh, The three that we discussed are when someone signs up, when someone's usage increases, or number three, when you see multiple users on one account. Don't just chuck your roadmap or sell your roadmap immediately. What you should do is you should first get on the same page as your prospects and make sure that you can solve for four of their five concerns, but then use the roadmap to get them over the last couple of concerns that they have, assuming that they're aligned with your company's vision. And then lastly, number four, the last thing is if you're early stage selling, you should focus on the early adopters. That might mean forward-thinking prospects on an account, or that might mean earlier stage accounts. Nick, how could people help us out here? You may be an early adopter of 30 Minutes to President's Club. You might be the only person on your team who listens to the show or joins us for our tactic teardowns, but you have a chance to help us expand in your account. But really, I'm just saying, if you think your teammates would benefit from the show, share it with them. So share it with them. We'll see you next week on the show. Gong's going to help you run the five-minute drill at the end of all of your calls today. At the end of a call, pressure test the prospect with three questions. Number one, do you want to buy? If the answer is no, why set a next step at all? Number two, when do you want to buy? If it's tomorrow, we got to move fast. Number three, how do you buy? Based on the first two answers, I can now adequately decide if and how I set a next step. And this was stolen from the Gong 30 MPC 90-Minute Masterclass, and you can steal it too in the show notes. Today's deal acceleration tip is brought to you by Demandbase. If you want to save a ton of time as a salesperson and be more relevant, I recommend you prioritize your prospecting by those prospects who are showing buyer intent. It'll keep you from making a bunch of noise and reaching out to folks who aren't in market, and instead you'll reach out to folks who are in market. Now, we built a bunch of templates to help you prioritize, accelerate, and win with Demandbase, and there is a link to those wonderful templates in today's show notes.